Hello, I'm Gretchen Cruzina, Paul Murray Kendall Professor of Biography at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and author of many books on Black history, including Black England. Welcome to Episode 1 of the PB Squared podcast on the Black Presence in British Portraiture Network. In this episode, we'll be discussing Thomas Gainsborough's 1768 portrait of Charles Ignatius Sancho and hearing a reading about him from Patterson Joseph's newly completed but as yet unpublished book, The Secret Diaries of Charles Ignatius Sancho. To discuss the work, I have two members of the network with me. The actor and writer Patterson Joseph, who chose the work, and the cultural historian Michael Ohajuru. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hello there, I'm Patterson Joseph, and I'm really looking forward to discussing this dazzling portrait and my hero, and to be honest, obsession, Charles Ignatius Sancho. And I'm Michael O'Hara. I'm so looking forward to discussing the significance of the black figure in 18th century English portraiture. Thanks for that. Before we start our discussion, here's a brief description of the work we'll be delving into. I first saw the image of Thomas Gainsborough's 1768 portrait of Charles Ignatius Sancho in Gretchen's book, Black England, entitled Black London in America. It wasn't in color, yet still it arrested the eye. What was it about this portrait that leapt out at me and caused me to go on this nearly 20-year-long journey with Charles Ignatius? I experienced an arresting shock at seeing this black guy who was painted in such a dignified way by the great portraitist Thomas Gainsborough. I've never actually seen the portrait in the flesh. I'm told by those who have that it is really quite dark and maybe a bit dirty, that someone had once done a cleaning job on it and that they may have damaged it in the process. Despite this, there's a glow emanating from his face. There's a light that comes from within, it seems, or at least that's the impression that I think Gainsborough was going for. As if the intelligence, radiance and wit of the man were visible on his features. And it's this light that draws the eye at first, even though the waistcoat he wears is so vibrantly red. It might well have been even brighter when the paint was freshly laid. It makes one feel that this is a lavish and loving depiction of the man. The fact that he's got that very obvious smile on his lips is striking too. He wears this slightly knowing, possibly sardonic smile, like he knows that life is a shit show for black people at the time, but he's, he's smiling through despite the pain. It's as if he's just said something, or is about to say something humorous. His expression, one of a, a person who's just told a very good joke and then seen people laugh, and while not laughing himself, having a sense of delighted satisfaction that people get it. He has a beauty to him too. His lips are so full and relaxed in that smile, as if that was his permanent mask, if you like. It's a public presentation of himself, but it's a, a true depiction of his heart. It may not be what he was like all the time. It may not even be what he was like most of the time privately out of the public sphere, whether it be through letters to the newspapers or letters to friends. But there is a kind of joy in him that would have been immediately obvious and attractive. So to describe what I see in the portrait from the bottom up, it's clearly an oval-shaped portrait on a dark background. I suppose it is canvas, but it has a more solid look to it, as if it were painted on a piece of mahogany. It doesn't look as if the paint is laid on lavishly. Given that observers said that Gainsborough could be quite sketchy, it's almost like a soft screen, out of focus image of Sancho, not photorealistic, but warmer than that. Like the difference between a photo in HD and one rendered in the fuzzy warmth of celluloid. The base of the portrait shows the frills of the white shirt cuff on his right hand, coming out of his dark frock coat. And the hand, which you can only see a bit of the wrist of, is resting just below the level of his solar plexus on his quite portly belly in a slightly self-satisfied way. The fact that his right hand is in his waistcoat indicates that he's being depicted as a man of leisure, 
which has an irony to it, of course, since Sancho is a servant, the valet to George, Duke of Montague. Not only that, but the gold of the buttons running up the right-hand edge of his open frock coat is very richly rendered. It's an expensive-looking livery. There's gold braiding going from the thin collar all the way down the portrait and disappears below the hand at the bottom. The frock coat is open, and I don't know if he would be able to close it over his round belly, but it doesn't matter. He wants to show us his red waistcoat. The black cravat is tucked in behind what may be another frilly and white cravat or the collar of his shirt, perhaps. Then you get to his neck and realise he barely has a neck. This is a corpulent man. It's quite dark under his chin and he's a very round face. The chin chucks out a little bit under the, the bottom lip, which curls over. And you can imagine there might be a little imperial, tiny bit of beard that grows under the bottom lip tucked in there, but it may just be a shadow. And he also looks like he could have a wee moustache on, on his top lip. But again, this is possibly just a shadow. Now, the nose is rather straight, nostrils quite contained, not the sort of wider, strong nostrils that you might see on the subject of the portrait of an African that some folks mistakenly thought was a young version of Sancho. It couldn't, couldn't possibly be, of course, as no black person I know changes the shape of their nose in a decade or even three. Now, this feature of Sancho's face has led me to speculate that he may have been a mixed heritage. The African nose can be a myriad of shapes, but because of his Caribbean connections, Colombia, it is tempting to speculate on his origins. The eyelashes are so long, almost feminine. The eyes are wide and they're open. Of course, because of the darkness of the portrait in the digital image I have, you can't tell whether the whites are white or slightly duller color of a man that likes a drink and a slab of rich meats. A little red and yellow, perhaps. The eyebrows are very like mine. They're very definite and quite bushy. The forehead isn't huge, the hairline reaching halfway down it. So it's a man not wearing a wig or has somehow straightened the kinks out of it. Or he has naturally very lightly curly hair, which again might lead one to think he might possibly have been mixed heritage. A potentially interesting twist of the Sancho story that I've only included once in a speculative movie scene many years ago. And the background is a sort of general glow. I know that Gainsborough painted with candles in a darkened room, and even in the daytime, and that's possibly the glow of a candle we can see behind him. It's wonderfully lit, like a film still, with the key light facing him and the fill light to warm the background and give the image depth and body, as if shot in a very controlled light in the black box set. It is a loving rendition of a man who clearly had a great degree of humour, wit, intelligence and sophistication. He's a wonder, and it is a wonder. And finally, apparently this portrait was painted in 100 minutes in Bath in the west of England. And that seems quite a quick turnover. It is possible that an apprentice, say his nephew, Dupont Gainsborough, might have finished off the body if he was around at that time, 1768. It wasn't that unusual, however, for painters, particularly the prolific Thomas Gainsborough, to knock off a few portraits in a day. And of course, the setting for this portrait was the premise of the opening act of my play, Sancho, An Act of Remembrance, which begins as he's sitting down for the last half hour or so of the session he, as he addresses the audience. And that's pretty much where my journey began with Sancho, certainly in terms of writing about him in 2005, when I first started writing the play. Patterson, it's so clear that you are so passionate about Ignatius Sancho. Oh my gosh, when you get... When you get into the book, you'll be crazy about how much I'm immersed. It's almost Daniel Day-Lewis type immersion. It's, it's kind of insane. And when I stopped writing it, I realized he'd sort of come out of my body, as it were. It's very odd. 
having written both a play and now this new novel about his life, maybe we should hear from you. What's first stirred your passion for Ignatius Sancho or Charles Ignatius? Was it the portrait? Was it something else? Was it his letters? Uh, no, it was you. Um, I had not. <laughs> it's true, Gretchen. I, I, <laughs> I was, uh, was seeking, um, literally, I say it in the beginning of the play, actually, I was seeking to uh, do a costume drama and I wanted to be in it because that's what I was trained for. That's what I sounded like. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do that kind of high, sort of highbrow um, acting that I've been doing at drama school and I've been studying. And um, so I was searching for a character that was before the, the Windrush generation, the 1948 generation, my parents' generation. And I found your book, uh, Black England. And there was, there was very little out there, I must say. Um, uh, there was uh, uh, Brick and Carey, I think he, that's how you say his name. Um, that was the only website that I could find that had information on Black England at all. Uh, and, I, and then your book. And I opened it and I saw this black and white print and my mouth sort of dropped open. I, I said, who, who is this? This is, uh, it's gotta be a Hogarth because Hogarth would put black people as witnesses, but it was that portrait and finding out his, even his brief story as you put it in the book that made me think I definitely have to investigate this man because he's a theater actor's dream. I, I had the pleasure of seeing your play and I didn't really realize what a polymath Ignatius was in terms of not just the man of letters. I mean, I've read about this in your book, Gretchen, man of letters. He was a businessman. Um, for me, he was also, well, a voter. He was an Englishman. Yeah. You know, so I see him very much as an Englishman first and a black man second. Am, am, am I being too fanciful there in, in, in that interpretation, Patterson? Oh, well, I mean, in the novel at one point, okay, so the novel... I've written is called um, The Secret Diaries of Charles Ignatius Sancho. Why secret? Um, I mean, I love a long title. I mean, my play, everything I've ever written has got like three different titles to it. But I love the fact that this is not the public voice. This is not the portrait. This is not the letters. This is Sancho on his own, thinking no one is listening to him, but he's got to write these thoughts down. There's no other outlet. And so at one point, when he's a young man, he's probably 17 at this point, he says, they tell me that I'm not something like this. They tell me that, uh, you know, I, I don't belong here. They treat me as if I don't belong here. And I don't know where I belong. I don't know where I was born. I don't know where I've come from. I've eavesdropped and I've heard bits, but I don't know. I will say I am a Briton, an African Briton, and no one can take that from me. That's what I believe. So I think there was a, there was a determination in him to be what he wanted to be, which was African and British, but also the knowledge of his own foreignness too. He does refer to himself sometimes as a guest yes. in Britain. A lodger. So, a the lodger, lodger that's, that's, right. That, he says. that's right. So Michael's question is fascinating because we see him as an early and important black British man. But at the same time that he claims that identity, he also... Um, has a sort of self-deprecating relationship with his adopted country. And I wonder sometimes in his letters whether that's really just a way of him trying to um, sneak in his own opinions about what it's like to be black in Britain at that time. Well, well you see, the second half of that, when he says, oh, I'm a lodger and hardly that, 
But, and then he goes on to talk about slavery and he goes on to talk about the, the, uh, the Europeans' greed, how that greed affected the Africans and how the Africans got into that greed and then began to sell their people. So he always, it seems to me, prefaces his, I, I'm, I, what am I? I'm just a simple, you know, sooty man. I'm a simple African, what do I know? He then goes into what he really does know. So it's his way of massaging people before he really gets them round the neck. It's a trick that a man who's surrounded by people who are hostile to him will learn very quickly. It's an immigrant's trick, by the way. I'll do the mocking first. I know you're going to mock me. But I'll do the mocking first. Now I've got control of the room. I can do what I want. But isn't that very English in terms of that, 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 that faux reserve? You know, no, it, no, no, not at all, not at all. At the same time, he knows who he was. He yeah. had that confidence that yeah, that, to, to assert himself. Yeah. I mean, Sancho is very easily seen as a kind of appeasing figure. Um, it reminds me a little bit, I think I've spoken about this before, of the way people would often look at uh, Louis Armstrong compared to Miles Davis. So Miles Davis was, was a, you know, a, a strong, uh, forceful, rather foul-mouthed man, and he was free. He was like the Malcolm X to see <laughs> Louis Armstrong's um, Martin Luther King. And the denigration of that generation as minstrels was totally wrong. And if you look at, um, there's a wonderful this series called Jazz, where a, uh, a guy who was a student uh, says that he heard somebody playing across the field. This is in Texas, I think. He goes across and in that room, he sees a man practicing. It's Louis Armstrong. And he said the angel sound that he was making totally destroyed everything he thought about black people, everything he'd been taught in the South. And he was one of the judges on the um, Brown versus Board of Education. He was one of the, 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 high, the, the high judges there. So, so it, the effect of somebody saying, I'm an artist and I'm showing you my art. I'm not gonna badger you with what I know is wrong, but I'm gonna show you my humanity. To me, that is more powerful than somebody swearing, shouting, and, and, and we need that. But actually what Louis did was change, <laughs> change the mindset of a man simply through his art, which I think as somebody would say, we, we learn more through art than we ever do through being taught by word or being shouted at. And I think Sancho is that man. I think Sancho, through his art, showed his humanity, and that was undeniable, and so it had to be denied. And so that's, I think, why he's more powerful, in my opinion, than, say, an Equiano at the time. So I'm really struck by this, because the way you've described him and the way he views his place and his political perspective on his being in Britain really um, is reflected in the portrait himself, itself, don't you think? Do you think that the portrait captures what you just said about his personality? Yeah, I think the portrait just says, I'm here. You know, that, I'm this, not this, making this, any show, I'm here. Let's talk a little bit about the portrait, because this is, this is exceptional. It's a portrait of, of a black man in 17th century, um, in 18th century England. We know who he is. He's got a back and a front story, has a history, which is exceptional. You know, there are others, okay, there are others, but none that we know so strong he was in a, in a, a real individual. And for me, it's it's more about it relates more to the English the English sense of self and portrait that was developing at that time. Reynolds was creating Reynolds and others were creating works that show not just kings and queens as great people, but the the, the English aristocrats. 
the English elite as great people. And here was a black man portrayed as an English elite. Hmm. Now, we could question, and I challenge you here, um, Patterson, you talk about the clothes that he was wearing. At the time, he was a servant. He wouldn't have, wear, he wouldn't have worn clothes that, of, of that, that elegant, that luxurious. This, I would argue, and I put it to you, you may, you may you know, come back at me, but this was costume drama. This was in the Gainsborough studio, we'll put this on to look like an elite. And, and he did that. No, he, he, didn't do, he didn't do that just for, for, um, for Ignatius. Other people came in. He had clothes ready for them to wear to look their very best in the portraiture because he wanted Gainsborough and the sitter wanted them to seem the best. So yeah. I would put it to you. He was not, you know, there's a bit of a bit of make believe in that, but positive make believe, I would put it to you. Interesting. Well, um, I don't believe that. I mean, I, I, my opinion is that Sancho was uh, a man of sartorial elegance. If you read his writing, he's, he's quite a vain man. So I have in the play, at uh, the point at which I begin to dress up, uh, start the play as myself, I say, and, and of course, um, the artist had suggested that I be painted uh, as a servant in appropriate, modest livery. I pointed out, that a valet to a duke has no business being modest. And then I turn and I show this big red red and I say, he agreed. And I think that is part of what Sancho is. I don't believe he went into a dressing up box, though I know that that is part of it. I think that's how Sancho behaved and how he went about. And that's why he was often mocked on the street because they weren't just mocking him for being black. They were mocking him for looking affluent and they mocked people for affluence at that time. Okay, but Patterson, I, I, let me come back to you. This is Bath. This is 18th century Bath. This is the Las Vegas of England in its day. Yeah. People live bigger than, lives larger than normal. And, mm -hmm. and Gainsborough, Reynolds, Zoffany, other portraits, they were bigging people up. That was what, they, that was what portrait artists did. Mm -hmm. and, and I put it to you, he was just being like everybody else. Everybody else, he wanted that portrait of him. I'm, I'm not, I don't take anything away from him in that sense that, you know, you know it makes it less of him. But he was just, he was being English. And that's what I love about him. He was being normal. I can only, I can only agree with you. But the, the wonderful thing that we've just discovered, of course, <laughs> is that all, all images are subject to interpretation by the viewer. So, you know, you can look at that portrait and say, oh, they dressed him up like some sort of uh, dolly. That's not what you're saying, but I'm saying one could. So he obviously wasn't really, he was just, oh, they just dressed him up. Or you could look at it and go, wow, he really was dressed as they saw him, which is this sumptuous, incredible, um, bright and present man with all the casualness of the hand and that basically says i don't work it's his right hand it's not his left hand it's his working right hand you know? Patterson, again at, at the risk of, again i don't want to be difficult here but that that's just the trick of the artist they would always put the, 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 the napoleon with his hand in his that was because the artist could just do the face the the, the the big art david and others would just draw the face and he leave the student that, to draw the that, that is true in art but in life Okay. When they wanted to show in life and, and sort of socially, when they wanted to show that they were, they were beyond having to scrub, you know, the floors or beyond having to dig coal, it was symbolic as well. Mike. Oh, of, of course, of course. Yeah. You know, the it was fact a that the, of, the, of the, the respect the, the, that the that this person was demanding 
of the of the viewer. And it's interesting that it, I'm not sure that he, because the, it was commissioned, obviously, by the Duke of Montague. Sancho mm. wouldn't have had the money to pay for it. Um, and it's interesting to ask the question: Who decided on that pose? Which is part of the play. It's about that discussion. You know, I was really struck by looking at the portrait again that it's a three-quarter profile. Yes. It's not daring stare at the camera. I dare you to look at me fully, but it's and it's not look at the side because I'm watching someone else. He's got some kind of knowing. Yes. You can see his face, mo- almost all of his face, but you can also see that he's sort of got some um, amused sense that he's sort of looking off in a different way. I don't yeah. know if that was what you were thinking. Absolutely. It is as if you, you don't matter as much to me. I'm not trying to impress you. I'm impressive. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> my, first, my first acting teacher said to me, um, there's an old boy, he was sort of trained in the 1930s. He's a wonderful man, but he used to say, Richard Carey, um, you know, actors can't ignore the audience unless... They're very great actors. Which obviously, as a young 18 year old, I want to be a really great actor. I want to ignore the audience. Why? How does that work? Well, if you're a great actor, the audience is watching you. You have to do very little. The audience will watch you. You don't have to, you know, a young actor will have to use all their energy and and push themselves and, and have their face towards the audience the whole time. Look at me, look at me. Whereas a great actor will sometimes turn their back on the audience. And they always go, oh, I wonder what they're thinking. His back looks like he's thinking, oh, it's just really heavy this moment. Oh, but he said something humorous, but really he's feeling. The audience are drawn towards that which is not being given to them. That's why movies work so well with actors who are pretty statuesque. I'm terrible on film. I give away too much. I'm a communicator. But they're great actors give you practically nothing, but you project everything onto them because you're curious about what they're thinking. That's the confidence, the self-confidence that Sancho has in that portrait. I don't need to look at you. You're looking at me. And you're right to be looking at me because I'm amazing. (laughs) Well, you know, he knew David Garrick. Yes. And Garrick, of course, revolutionized acting and the naturalness and the way one presented oneself on the stage. He wasn't just standing and declaiming. So I'm wondering if there's some influence in there because, of course, he did try to act at some point. He did. I mean, I don't know much about his acting career, to be honest. I extrapolate, but I don't know much about it. Um, I mean, uh, the rather awful uh, preface to the original letters published in 1782, Sancho's letters, uh, Joseph Jekyll talks about him having a speech impediment which blocked his career, which I, in the the play, of course, make a joke of. Yes, it was the speech impediment. Nothing to do with anything else. Which which the audience, we have a very embarrassed moment when the audience is trying to tell me it's because you're, then they realise, well, we can't say that, but actually, does he know? There's a wonderful sort of awkward moment. But that's true. I think he's very, very uh, self-aware. He's he's an actor. His letters are theatrical. You talk about the voice. One one of the the paintings perhaps we'll do later on in the series is Ira Aldridge. Oh, wonderful, yeah. John Simpson. And there's reviews of Ira Aldridge, which says his speech was not that good. Mm-hmm. It was not clear. It would, it would only appeal, well, it wouldn't even appeal to those in the, in the balcony, those in the cheap seats. There's something wrong with it. And these, these, these very um, critiques, this is in the Times, they were, these were written by people who were paid by anti-abolitionists. Huh. 
they knew he was a great actor, but but they, but they, but they denied his greatness, and 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 they brought him down by saying he couldn't speak properly. And this story, Michael, is and a book is coming out very soon about black uh, uh, British uh, theatre, well, British theatre and the Shakespearean uh, black Shakespearean actors. It's a it's going to be an amazing book by Dr. Jamie Rogers. Um, but here's what we think that when I started in uh, early eighties, the generation before mine and certainly the generation before that, who were trying to act through the 50s and 60s, were vilified and always told and denigrated that they didn't have the musculature, because it's an African thing. You don't really have a musculature for English. So our generation was like, eh, you know, sorry, I was nearly going to swear, but our generation said, mm, okay. So we just killed it. So there's no excuse now because we can speak this. But cut to 2012. Royal Shakespeare Company does an all-black production of Julius Caesar. We set it in a fictional African country. We play this play, and we're doing it in East African. Some of us are better at it than others, but in East African accent. So you get, um, you know, people talk like this incredibly clearly. I mean, so clearly. You know, you have a word like blood. It's so full, as opposed to blood, which is correct, but not as good as blood. We had people coming backstage saying, oh, I didn't, yes, it was difficult to um, sometimes sort of tune in and understand what you were saying. This is a constant problem because it's in the mindset of the listener, the auditor, that you're black, I'm not going to have, a, I'm going to have a problem with you. And it's not just because of the anti-abolitionists and all that, it's a thing and it still exists. You're so on the money. I see that in art, in my own art, in art modernism. There's no black African modernism. They're stealing, they're taking things from the, 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 uh, the uh, European vocabulary. They cannot express it properly. And the fact that they deny yes. the, the interpretation of modern life that Europe went through, that Africa is going through, and finding a, a vocabulary which is similar to European. No, that's ours. It's essentialized. We've, we've got it right. And that, that sense of we own the narrative. Yes. This, is, this is how it should be. Yes. I just find, you know, I find it so frustrating in the sense of art is interpretation. Mm. It's, it's how you feel and respond to the work and how the audience does it. It's not for some critic to mediate and say, this is the benchmark. This is well, what it, it is. The, the, the Nigerian author Chinua Achebe, you know, things fall apart, um, and no longer at ease, etc. He, Hour of God, the, the African trilogy, as they call it. In 1964, he was talking to Wallace Inca, and uh, having an interview, and, and he said, uh, you know, in Europe there are a lot of um, cultural popes pontificating on what is the correct way to write a novel. I just love that quote. I was just watching it on YouTube. You can see a bunch of interviews on YouTube, but him with Wallace Inca. I mean, cultural popes sums up a lot of how things are seen. It's like, this is our provenance. Why are there only three black ballerinas that anybody can mention, or one lead black possibly black um, ballerina, ballet dancer at the Royal Ballet. Why? <laughs> Physically, we're, we're specimens. Unfortunately, we were bred to be specimens, some of us are from the Caribbean. We're incredible physical specimens, and we have grace. We can dance. You know we can dance. It's one of the things you put on us, and all oh, black people can dance, but not ballet. Not ballet. You haven't got the physiognomy. Well, what do you mean? We're human beings. We've got arms and legs. So we've got a grace. So it's this idea, it's a monolith, but it will come down. It's this idea that there is a place for, uh, um, you know, ethnic uh, minorities, and there's a place for the Caucasian expression of art, and the two 
will never come together. But art is art. Art belongs to everybody. Art is life. There's no one can tell you what is great art and what is not. It's up to your eyes and the eye of the beholder. You know, there's a wonderful cartoon. I've suddenly forgotten the name of the artist, a satirical cartoon where a man is sitting at a desk wearing a pith helmet, writing notes. He's obviously in Africa. And one of his servants comes flying out with a piece of paper in his hand with great excitement. And the man writes down, I'll never forget the name that he discovered the art of the post-impressionists. Which is the great irony, of course, because the post-impressionists were copying African art. So it's a riff on the idea that Africans are finding an interpretation of their own art and coming to the white colonist and saying, look at this wonderful art, which, of course, we know um, they invented, that Picasso did not invent, you know, this kind of art. But I think we should think a little bit more about the context for Sancho because we're talking about him as being so unique, which he is. He was incredible, but he was not alone. He was not the only black person in 18th century England or even London, which had a very large black population. So how do you place him both in the context of history and his own time, but also in the way that other black figures might have been represented at that time? Well, I mean, my my idea of of London at that time has been um, completely uh, revolutionised in the last twenty years or so. When I used to, if anybody said, "Well, what do you think about you know the novel Tom Jones by Fielding? How would you envisage that?" It would obviously have just been monocultural. It would have all been white. But now my picture is very different. I see Indians, I see Chinese, I see Black Africans, I see you know Caribbean people. So. For me, London is a very different place to most people when they think of London in the 18th century. Now, I can never unsee that. And it's what I'm attempting to do, I suppose, with the novel and everything else, try to immerse people in a different image. The other black figures in London are interesting because I, I also think that there's a separation between Sancho and the strange life, because he's an, he's an outlier even amongst the Africans in London, that there is a kind of um, outsiderness to him, even towards his fellow black people. But there are figures that I'm convinced he would have known and certainly would have been um, acquainted with, like Equiano. Now, even though I say in, the, in, in an introduction, well, it's, it's in the afterword now, that there is no record of him having met Equiano or having sat down and talked about it, but they're two famous black Londoners living in quite close proximity in a very small London. They would have known actually, certainly each other, but I think certainly their circle would have been the same kinds of people. Granville Sharp was connected with uh, Equiano, Equiano, uh, I'm sorry, and then Sancho certainly would have been connected to, to, to Granville Sharp and the Clarksons. They would have been a knowledge of them. And so I imagine this is a unwritten, um, is a sort of unwritten bit of history. And I don't know, I haven't read a lot about meetings of these great minds, apart from the Sons of Africa, of course, which is Equiano's group, um, which you maybe could talk about, James Groniosaur and Notaba Coguano. What about Francis Baker, Francis Barber, you know, the, Samuel Johnson's um, secretary? Did, did he know him? Do you think he knew Ignatius? Because they were all there or thereabouts. And I find it hard to believe they were at least they were aware of each other. 
They would have uh, known of each other. It's ridiculous and usually, uh, sorry, I'm sorry to say, but white historians who make this, well, we have no record of this. Well, records don't tell you everything. If records told you everything, we'd know how to deal with COVID. There are opinions, there's ideas, there are things happening on the side that nobody records. So I have him going into um, uh, Seven Dials, where there was um, quite a rough community, a lot of Irish in there who were pretty much vilified for their their Catholic leanings, the Pope, the Papists, still afraid of the Jacobean uprising, you know. But there's a community that would have pretty much been no go for any of the authorities. I don't think that's a community you could go into and do a census and say, so four households, you've got four households, how many people in this household? Censuses weren't done anyway until the beginning of the 19th century. So there's an idea of London that we have that is a sketchy idea. So I, I think it's very possible that these guys knew. I don't know Idris Elba. I've never met Idris Elba. But I know he knows me because he met my sister. And he said, oh, Pat, he's a brother. Now, that's no big deal. But I know Idris because even if we, he hadn't been on television, I would have heard about it. I knew about David Harewood, who's a very good friend of mine, before I ever met him because I was at Lambda and he was at Rada killing it. So it's, and it's, London is huge now and there are hundreds of thousands of us. So it's a ridiculous, I'm sorry to say, monocultural view that says that these people couldn't possibly have known each other. Well, you know, when I did Black England, one of the reviews immediately said that I should have looked at all the rent rolls and thereby determined the race of everybody who was renting a home in London. They did not, of course, indicate race in those records. So there's much more, and there are wonderful historians tracing this now, but there is no way to be sure. And the other thing I think we never really think about is that there were differences in rank, even among black people, and that someone who worked in a very small household, I was thinking of the woman who worked for the sculptor Nolikens, who knew Ignatius Sancho. She was at the very bottom of the kind of working class, whereas Sancho was a valet. He probably spoke some French. He had a great sense of fashion. He knew the great and the good. Um, and they probably did not hang out together at a pub after work in the evening. This is so interesting because I get a moment where he meets Anne Osborne. And he says in the novel, this is my imagination, but he says something like, I, I don't know any black women. I don't know any of them. And I've been told that there isn't such a thing as black aesthetic beauty. And I see this woman and these women who are in this thing. And I, I know that that's not true. But actually, that connection with 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 um, the 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 uh, I suppose the aesthetic of beauty is a new thing for this man. I make it a new thing. But I think that's what we are missing. We're missing those stories. We're missing the intimate stories when people are just talking about being. As Michael always says, these are human beings first. They're functioning, living human beings. We put them, sort of objectify them a little bit. Even we do as sort of, well, me as an amateur historian, a little bit. But actually there's a real missing quality, which is how did they marry? I have Sancho saying, of course I couldn't marry a maid. My ladies, who we lived with, wouldn't allow me to marry a maid. And I myself would need somebody who has some education because I'm a man of education. So we sort of trap between a rock and a hard place. But these sort of nuances of, of humanity are often missing in the, this is the information and that's all we need. No, we need to bring it alive. Can I give one example, Michael? Have I got time for that? Very quickly. 
So there was a little discussion a little while ago about the decree of Queen Elizabeth I that there were too many black people cluttering up the streets and that they must all be sent away. And uh, there's a bit of an argument, a sort of mild argument online. Well, you know, she didn't say that, so, you know, that's not true. Well, it was written. It's there. It's evidentially there. If it was written, it means that there were enough black people for it to be a possibility that this might have been a decree, right? To me, that's more important than, well, it was never passed. But no, no, listen to what it says. Your interpretation is these are not facts. I'm saying there were enough of them for it to be possible for someone to write that. It wasn't fantasy. They knew that there were too many black people, too many. So that's more interesting to me than the fact that they didn't get all put on a ship and taken away. They never, that never happened. That never happened. But the paper did. The idea did that there were black people here. So let's investigate that. And I think that's what historians should move across from. This is the facts. These are the numbers to where are the, where's the humanity behind this? What's the real social story here? Let's paint a picture and so people will remember it rather than facts, which no one retains, I don't think. So, Patterson, one final question to you. You you are so passionate about this. You have brought this to life in multiple multiple ways. You know, you've, you've talked about his painting. You have acted his role. You have written a novel now. You, you clearly identify with this man. (laughs) <laughs> what, what what do you want readers and viewers and listeners to get out of this sense that of not your identity with him, but what is it you want people to come away with after all of this work you've done? I want the word 18th century, 18th century London, 19th century London, Victorian London, to not bring an image that we've seen a million times where there's no anybody from anywhere apart from white people. I want that image to change. I want when people talk about history pre-1948 for their image of England, their history, to change. One tiny thing that was powerful to me the other day was being told that the railings on our Georgian squares used to be brightly coloured. Prussian blue was the favourite. White sometimes, pink. Wow! Wow. And then in 1861, I think, or 1851, 1861 maybe, when Albert died, they were painted black in mourning and they've remained black pretty much since. Our colour of history is black and white because of circumstance, not because of that's the way it was. So that's what I want to do. I want to colour the railings of our history again so we can see it in technicolour turn up the colour contrast so we can see for real. That's what I want. That's why I say Patterson Joseph, better than Dickens. Because I'm not, I'm not as good a writer as him, but I'm seeing a bit more than he saw. That's it. <laughs> that is an incredible way to end this conversation. I want to thank you, Patterson, and I want to thank you, Michael. We're going to end episode one of the PB Squared podcast with Patterson Joseph reading from his novel, The Secret Diaries of Charles Ignatius Sancho. In his novel in progress, The Secret Diaries of Charles Ignatius Sancho, Patterson Joseph has imagined a sheath of recently discovered diaries containing Sancho's most intimate reflections being collated and published for the first time by a St. Lucian journalist, Atal Walcott. It lies firmly in the world of Fields' Tom Jones or the later adventures of David Copperfield in a neo-18th century style. 
It does not pertain to be verbatim history, but seeks to lift that burden off the imaginative mind and find an artful, fun way to tell our black British stories. After all, even in the times of transatlantic slavery, black people were still simple people who loved, who laughed and cried, and as we will see here, danced. The extract he's about to read to you comes from book two, when Sancho has escaped the clutches of the Greenwich Coven, the three sisters, who were his owners from the age of four or so. The chapter is entitled Black London and tells the story of Sancho's first real encounter with the black community, such as it was in London. He is introduced into this world by John Osborne, a footman from another noble house and the first black friend Sancho ever has. Sancho is 24 and about to enter into an arena he knows little about, to his shame, but wishes to belong to somehow. Black London The Black Tar Tavern in Fleet Street was an inauspicious venue for my first encounter with Black London at leisure. I stood watching the comings and goings from across the street, afraid suddenly that I would be lost in this world of foreigners and working men who sweat for their shillings. I might know more than I did many years before about the ways of London at night, but I still held the habit of avoiding the taverns east of Covent Garden in the river, an old habit that I was breaking tonight in order to meet John Osborne. All the people that entered while I stood, hesitant, across the street were black, certainly brown. It would appear that no whites entered this tavern, and I wondered if the proprietor was happy with that state of affairs or no. Whatever the financial cost to him of having such an exclusive clientele, his hostelry was well frequented this night. I bravely walked across the road and entered the tavern, which required no special knock and offered entry without cost or hindrance. White folks could not be excluded here, I realised. They merely chose not to enter an establishment that would render them a rarity in the company. Pushing the doors fully open, I gazed at length on the lively scene before me. I was wrong. There were many white faces here, scrubbed clean, as was the whole ensemble, and dressed in the finest their pennies could buy. The music that emanated from inside was difficult to assess at first. Percussive sounds that moved in a time signature I was unfamiliar with. There seemed to be more than eight beats in each bar, and the bars were not clear to my unaccustomed ear. It was as if one of Handel's liveliest dance pieces was subject to the injection of an urgency that rendered the melody secondary to the rhythm. Constant, imperative, wild. But there was something else to the music. Something other than just the beat, it was the, the richness and detail of the harmonic layers that created a sense of abandon. The tavern was large and had a tall ceiling, unusually for an establishment on this street. It was not brightly lit, but the lamps around the room lent a warm feel to the space. Benches, chairs and a few small tables were placed on the edge of the room and the centre was given over to dancers, couples, white and black and all shades besides. They danced close, without jackets or coats, but in shirt sleeves, including the women in their light chemises. Some dancers, I noticed, even brought their faces together, cheek by jowl, holding each other in a way that left no doubt that their bodies knew the other well. It was at once thrilling and shocking. I'd been a week with the Montagues performing odd tasks and being blessed by the incapacitation of George's valet. 
I had had social intercourse with those who knew how to behave, but these men and women struck me immediately as the most free of all societies in our eclectic city. Five musicians, with a sixth joining from the crowd while I watched, sat or stood to one side at the rear of this space, and, without sheet music to guide them, played as if they were one instrument. A table, about the size of a large serving bowl, was being worked with a small stick that resembled a bone in wood, the drum resting on the knees of a man, an Irishman, I believe, who made the round instrument vibrate and boom by placing his hands behind the drum on impact with the stick. A martial sound was delivered in this way, guiding the dancers and his fellow instruments in the required tempo. A curious side effect of his skilful playing was the clicks and bends from the wooden rim and the centre of the skin, respectively, the latter spot on the drum eliciting a kind of conversation with itself. That the bending of a simple, percussive note could be so expressive astonished me. The Irish maestro was not the only percussionist in this merry band to keep the crowd jumping, and they were jumping with a metronomic pulse. Another drum was being worked by a painfully thin and terribly old-looking jet-black African man who sat and played with a vigour that belied his physicality and seniority. The drum was barrel-shaped and tall enough to be angled towards him while still being largely upright as he used his gnarled, though dexterous hands to beat out the complex rhythm. The skin still had the goat's fur tenaciously attached in many places and these the ancient drummer used to dampen certain notes as required. This drum, too, had a kind of conversation, a call with a response in kind, an echo towards the first drum, this element alone was worthy of many minutes' study. What's more, my stomach, a little empty and sour from imbibing nothing but an earlier mug of ale, felt manipulated, not unpleasantly, by the deep bass throb of those beats. Another man tapped absent-mindedly on a metal cup, which added a foreign and persistent reminder of the offbeat in this percussive trio. The body of the tune was being carried by the player, an Arab, of an instrument that resembled a mandolin, though he seemed to only be playing two strings of this, adequate for the simple but foot-tapping rhythm that these men were creating, seemingly from thin air. A fiddler and a woman with a tin whistle, one Irish, the other Indian, perhaps, were going away at it with vigour and the stamping of feet. The rhythm was, at base, a jig played in Irish style, and after a time, one's ear attuned to both the southern percussion and the lilting simplicity of the Irish dance. I was held by this juxtaposition of styles for several minutes. I heard sounds they were not playing sang lyrics in my mind that they had not composed. It was as if a work of art had been made music, and the same rules applied in both cases. The same truths were true in art and music, that whatever is produced by the hands of art or music will have a story, original and unrepeatably so, definitive for that instant, since the writer and the artist creates or composes purely for its own sake. Pure? Creative joy is all the incentive, all the patronage this kind of expression needs to complete its commission, and ironically, it is this integrity of creation that leads to a work being fated and hard-sought, I decided then. These men and that woman were playing for themselves an act of liberty, not judged or caring to be judged by any outside commentator or critic, and relying solely on each other to guide their work. I was mesmerised. Captivated by the music, the atmosphere of raucous but somehow decorous abandon, the laughter and smiling faces of African and Indian, Arabian and Irish faces. Faces smiling now when I had rarely seen them smile, and what would they smile at? 
people oppressed in their daily lives, free to live as unmolested citizens by night. I felt the sense of home for these people and hoped that I might find a place among them myself. Regardless, this time I was not looking to blend in, but to see if I might naturally stand amongst this group, as each participant in this group had in their turn stood as individuals before me. For surely, I surmised, as I looked around the gathered company, none of these had the same story to tell of how they came to be here in England and were not rather home in the land where their mother had given them birth. The final musician, who had come from the crowd, brought an accordion and began playing what seemed like the wrong tune. Its baroque orderliness was almost at discordant odds with the wildness of the other instruments. But somehow, and I missed the transition myself, though I was listening attentively for it, somehow, I say, the seemingly inharmonious instrument fitted with a beauty and liveliness that improved the whole. I was in a kind of musical state of bliss, as if heaven had opened its curtain for an instant and shown me a choir of angels. More than this, had allowed me to bask in worship of a new deity whose gift of grace is music. More than one deity, in fact. Terpsichore. Muse of lyric poetry and dance. Melpomene, for the lyre-like instrument. Euterpe, muse of the flute, joins with Polymnia, muse of the dance. And for her sensual pleasure, Erato joins too, for eroticisms are to be found in body, word and music. All these and more join in celebration of these earthly artisans, and the gods would not have been more grateful than I for the chance to see this spectacle, hear these new sounds. I turned my attention to the dancers then, cavorting restlessly in the centre of this room, for the musicians had all uttered a kind of battle cry, an African warrior's cry, prompting the crowd to clap and begin the next rhythm themselves in so doing. The Irish were the first to catch the rhythm round the room, the African man being not too far behind. The bass of both the Irish and African drums with the thoom, thoom, as they conversed with each other. Next came in the fiddler, and that's when all hell broke loose in the place. The floor was invaded with dancers bending forwards and backwards in strict time to the bass drums and in strict rows of about four, but so loosely performed that one thought a back might break or two heads might crash together violently. So far they bent to touch the ground before and behind them. I caught a glimpse of a couple hoist one another in the air by turns. Yes, the stout black lady lifted him momentarily, but his was the greater feat as he managed to carry the plump maid a full circle before settling her down gently, only to swirl madly again with his dizzy partner. Oh, I was captivated and began to jump up and down myself, making a most uncouth spectacle of myself in the doing of it, no doubt. As the drumming took over all the other instruments, it seemed we all had a voice or a tune in our heads to accompany the simple sounds that twisted and turned in an endless combination of regular and irregular rhythms and sequences. A marvel! Sweating profusely, I became abandoned for many minutes. The regular irregularity of the music beginning to have an hypnotic effect on my senses. And I imagined myself by a river camp in Africa. My tribe is celebrating a great victory over our nearest rivals. Unlike many tribes in that coastal area, we have always refused to trade in slaves. We are proud of our name. We know who we are, and so we dance." Lost to locale and all temporal concerns, I, I danced like this until a certain gouty knocking on both knees reminded me that I was no longer seven years old. Sitting, elated and exhausted, on a long bench at the side of this large room, I spotted John Osborne being greeted warmly by all who noticed his entrance. 
He scanned the room for a moment, and my throbbing knees were grateful that he waved his hand to signal I need not rise, and another gesture that meant that he would return with liquid refreshment, for he could see I was a-melting with the stuffiness of the place and the vigour of my capering performance. I revelled in the rest my joints were receiving and gazed at these celebrants. Many of the white ladies there had black bows, and even a few of the black women were with Indians, Chinamen, or whites. The Arabs alone seemed to be content to watch and drink rather than partake of any cavorting or the pressing of any flesh on flesh. In the dimly lit tavern, I lost sight of individual faces or colours of skin, the mass of humanity and the twist and whirl of bodies, limbs, heads, all in stark silhouette from this side of the room, as the lamps over the bar opposite me were much brighter than in my quiet corner, hypnotically soothed me. Not one soul was performing for their supper here, nor were they aware that they were observed at all, as if they were at home and danced with an abandon that I envied. Any would. The conduct of the music had been given over to the crowd, it seemed, and the little orchestra was now joined by other artists. Adding to the instruments being already played were tabors, tambourines, and upturned wooden barrels. One clever lady was playing the top of a half-empty bottle like a flute, blowing the air across the rim, her voluptuous wet lips fixed in a smile of glee. A clever, bright-eyed lad, the colour of ebony and skin as smooth, was playing a small tabor that was attached to his left wrist by a string, and he wrapped the tabor with a slender baton held in his right hand whilst he skilfully played a small flute held in his left. Ingenious. Inexplicably, a French horn appears and adds to the pleasant cacophony. I'd never seen anything like this in my life, was the first thing I told John, screaming the words carefully into his eardrum. The volume had risen somewhat since my dancing career had ended a few moments ago. Deafened somewhat by my voluble enthusiasm, he rose and lifted me up as he did so. I tried to disguise my discomfort as I limped slightly over to the corner after him. Sitting in a hidden snug were three young black ladies. The first was younger than the other two and held herself very stiffly, as if this gathering was offending her sensibilities in some way. The girl opposite her was darkly beautiful, with a smile that spoke of modesty and patience. A girl you would treasure as a friend, I thought, instantly. But it was the girl in the middle of these two ladies who truly caught my attention. The music you've just heard was a minuet by Ignatius Sancho. It was revised and arranged by Ben Park. We do hope you've enjoyed this first episode of the BP Squared podcast. If you have, then please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. There you can keep abreast of upcoming shows, and importantly for spreading the word, it helps others to find our podcast. Do please leave us a review and a rating. Goodbye till next time, and thanks for listening.